You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. God's anger at sin. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worst yet, they encourage others to do them too. So if you weren't here last week, we did a bit of an introduction to Romans, and um, he talked about the fact that the, really one of the main reasons that Paul is writing to this church, even though he's never been to Rome, he doesn't know the Christians there, is that he knows that it's a divided church. Uh, he knows that they're divided from Jew and Gentile and their understanding of what it means to be a Christian, and so he wants to unite them in the gospel. He's like, I want a united church, and I want the church to be united around the most important thing, which is the gospel of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And so um, I won't go into the whole intro again. Uh, It'll teach you for not being here if you weren't. If you want to hear that stuff, um, you can search us on iTunes. We have our podcast or on SoundCloud, and you can go back and listen to everything we say, which is obviously a very good use of your time. All right, so I encourage you, pick up Romans. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. Uh, But before... We get to that. Let me just read again for you the two most important verses from last week, two of the most important verses in the Bible, in in different ways have shaped not just church culture, but culture at large. Let me read them to you. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. 
For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so we have this great statement that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Amen. Right? Amazing. The question that Paul's going to get to now, and the question that we need to wrestle with, is saved from what? Like, why do we need this salvation in the first place? If you know anything, if you've done any kind of ministry, gospel ministry in Australia, you'll know that the, the biggest problem is not sharing the gospel. It's, it's really getting people to understand why they need to be saved in the first place. We live in an incredible time, right? The most comfortable, luxurious, educated, wealthy time that's ever been, and we live in one of the most wealthy, comfortable, luxurious countries in the world, right? So we, we don't feel a strong sense of our need to be saved from anything. Like, right now, I am a 36-year-old, I find it hard to keep up, a 36-year-old white man, right? Like, there is not much that I need. I've got a full-time job, um, I've got a house for my wife and kids to live in. Um, I, like, in terms of threat to my personal well-being, I'm, you know, like, I'm not old and I'm not young. I'm right in the sweet spot. I don't need anything right now, right? And, and so it, just, just living day to day, there's nothing I need. Very few times in my life do I think, oh, man, I really need that. Or do I think I need that and I can't have it, right? Everything is at my fingertips. And you fit into the same category, whether you're man, woman, young, old. Like, we live in a culture where we don't need much. The culture that I got saved into... Was, uh, I, was, I was saved into a context where um, I started doing ministry with, um, with inner-city kids from Pittsburgh in, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, so Pittsburgh is a, used to be an industrial town, now it's just a poor town. Um, and these kids were all African-American kids from the ghetto, from, the, from the really the poorest part of town. If you've never been to America, it's, it's easy... Uh, I know we've got some friends here from America today. It's easy to sort of project our culture onto theirs and think it's the same, but there are some big differences. One of the major differences is that the gap between rich and poor is much more stark, especially in these inner-city areas. And so all of these kids were living in either just cardboard box, essentially cardboard boxes, or they were homeless, or they were living in the projects, the, the ghetto, right, the te- terrible high-rise apartments. Not one of them out of the hundreds that I was doing ministry with, not one of the boys knew their dad, without an exception. They were either, dad was either dead or gone, or in jail, like, just, right? So, into that situation, you also have all of these 12 and 13-year-old boys were the equivalent of 30-something-year-olds in our culture, right? So, just had to grow up quick. And so they had this mature understanding of life that we tend not to have, maybe ever, in our culture. And what they had, which was so beautiful, was a, a strong sense of their need. Now, most of them didn't know what that need was or how to fix it. They would feed it with things that could never satisfy them, but they were aware, of, at least they were aware of it. So when we come to them and say, we've got this good news, there's some receptivity there, right? Like, the ground that is dry is eager to soak up any moisture than it can. And so we had this great ministry, great harvest of people coming to know Jesus. That has not been my experience in Australia at all. And it's not for lack of presentation. It's for lack of receptivity. 
And so we need to know, maybe more than anyone else I know, we need to know the answer to this question. Why do we need to be saved? What are we being saved from? Paul's going to tell us, all right? Let's pick it up. Verse 18. Here's what he says. The wrath of God, it should be really for, so linking the last passage to this one, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's why we need to be saved. Why do we need to be saved? Because of the wrath of God. Because the wrath of God is being revealed, right? So now, right now, the wrath of God, this is not just a future thing, right? When everyone, judgment day type thing, this is now God's wrath is being revealed against godlessness and wickedness. That's why we need to be saved. And I know, man, there is most of what I'm going to say this morning is wildly unpopular, right? Some of you are going to hate me after this. And, and, and this is why it's important just to go through the Bible and have it set the agenda, right? The first unpopular thing we're going to talk about is the wrath of God. And you might have been to church for years and never heard anyone talk about the wrath of God. It's unpopular. It's unfashionable. It's being written out of people's Bibles, right? But here's, here's what the wrath of God is. It is not the opposite of His love. That's what trips people up. They say, well, if God is love, then He can't be angry. Whole books have been written on this, right? One in particular called God is not angry, right? Because He's love... He can't be anger. He can't be wrath. Here's what you need to know about God's wrath. It's not like my wrath, my anger as a father of two little kids, right? Which can just snap after the 15th time that they're fighting one another and I've told them not to. That, that is my fallen, broken response to fallenness and brokenness that I see around me and experience. This is not the wrath of God. God's wrath is settled. It is settled, and it is just. Every bit of wrath that God experiences is justified. And here's the thing. The wrath is not the opposite of God's love. It is the complement to His love. That is, He is wrathful because He is love. Let me give you a bad example. The other day, I was at the skate park, as I'm wont to do, with my boy Judah, we were skating around and we had his cousins with us. We did a little trip and um, his uh, older cousin, Sammy, didn't have a helmet and so he wasn't allowed to skate around. And, um, and then so India, my eldest, you know, she, she, can, she, she like, enjoys skating but if there is more than two people somewhere, she'll want to go and become friends with them, all right? So she's, she's decided she's going to go and start her own little club uh, in, the, in the park and so uh, there's a helmet available but it's pink. It's pink and it's got flowers and um, fruit and stuff on it and stickers that she's put on it of something called Shopkins. Anyway. And so I was like, Sammy, here's a helmet. You can scoot. And he's like, there's no way on earth that I'm going to wear that helmet. And, uh, and here's why I love Judah, right? Here's why he's the coolest kid I know. He, just, he was just like, oh, have mine. Have my cool black helmet and uh, I'll take the pink one. He's four, right? But here's, here's why he's cool. This is the definition of cool, in case you're wondering. The definition of cool is someone who doesn't care if they're cool or not, all right? That's it's just a fact. That's not me. It's him. And so he, took, he put on this helmet, and he was just scooting around doing his thing. He's, he's just radical when it comes to skate park. And 
And then these three boys, 12 years old, maybe started making fun of him. And so he had a pink helmet and blah. And he was like, whatever. Um, but I was angry. And the wrath of Jono burned. <laughs> and I just vanquished them with my words. I swear, I didn't, like, I didn't touch them, but it was a sight to behold. I don't think they're going to make fun of anything pink ever again. That is a frivolous example of what I'm getting at. The reason that I felt angry was because I love that kid and I have a sense of justice that tells me that there is wrong and right in the world and that it's worth defending. Take the incomplete, inconsistent, insufficient love of a father that can turn to wrath at the sight of injustice and then magnify it infinitely to the love of a righteous God. And you just, just, just think about this. Just, we're going to do something in, in, a, in a few weeks' time, fundraising for a charity called Destiny Rescue that, that takes little, little girls and boys who have been sold into sex, sex slavery. I mean, I mean little kids. I mean primary school kids who are raped dozens of times a day. We're, we're going to try and get them some money to do some of the ministry that they're doing. Imagine being a God of infinite love and seeing creatures made in your image treated that way. And then tell me that God shouldn't be a God of wrath. Tell me about it and we can discuss why your God is an imaginary God and why he is not nearly as loving as the God that Paul describes for us here. God's wrath is being revealed against godlessness and wickedness, right? So here's just a brief description of that. Godlessness is like referring to our relationship with God, the vertical between me and him. Godlessness is all of the ways that I fall short of the glory of God. All of the ways I fail to make all of life all about Jesus. Ungodliness. And then wickedness is, is kind of referring to my horizontal relationships. So as much as my vertical relationships are out of whack, it's going to influence my, my horizontal relationships. So because I'm godless, because I'm ungodly, then I'm going to treat people in wicked ways. And so God's wrath is being revealed because we are violating the way that God designed us to be, to honor him and to honor one another. Basically, God's wrath is being revealed because we haven't obeyed Jesus in Mark chapter 12. I'm a pretty simple guy, and so I love, I love the way that Jesus makes things very simple for me in Mark 12, all right? Here's what happens. One of the teachers of the law, so one of these lawyers, one of these guys who knows all of the laws of the Old Testament, came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus answers, the most important one is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So it's our failure to do that. Our failure to do that 
stirs the righteous and just wrath of God, which is being revealed. That's why we need to be saved, because everyone is in the same boat when it comes to this. This is not, I'm not saying, praise God, we're all good in here, but those guys, right, out there, those ones who are eating burgers instead of praising God, that the wrath of God is going to zap them. No, the wrath of God is being revealed against all All of the godlessness and wickedness of people, just people, people like you and me. That's why we need to be saved. We need to be saved by the power of God from the wrath of God. So it's just part of my makeup, it's just part of my heart, the way I'm wired. I'm going to be godless. I'm going to be wicked. And you know what else I'm going to do? What's just part of my heart? I'm going to be I'm going to be I'm going to be defensive. When I read this, immediately there's a little lawyer on retainer in my heart. Paid very well, works 24 hours a day, and he just he's got all of the good arguments, all of the good excuses for why this doesn't apply to me. Paul knows this, and so he anticipates this objection. He, he, he anticipates us going, well, well, we don't know any better, or, or I'm only human, or, or the one that we like to do a lot. It's, well, what about that obscure tribe in that place that doesn't know about who God is? Paul says, yeah, I, I hear objections, and none of them are valid. Let's read verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his, in, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they, know, they knew God, neither... Sorry. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. He says, since creation, right? Since the beginning, since creation, in creation, because of creation, everyone knows that there is a Creator. Now, there is plenty that we can't know about God by looking at a tree or at a landscape. We, we can't know specifics. We can't know the gospel. This is why we need words to communicate these things. But, Paul says, from the beginning, people everywhere have known that there is a transcendent power that has created them and to whom they will be held accountable. Everyone is in the same boat. This is partially why... Throughout human history, every culture that has ever lived has had some kind of religious system. Some of them are groping at something that they don't quite understand. Others are more organized. But everyone who's ever lived has known that there is a power that has created them to whom they'll be held accountable. Let me give you, we don't have time for this, but I want to give you just three, three conversation starters over lunch, right? Three, three things at least that um, the creation tells us about God, right? Number one, um, 
Creation tells us that God is a God of infinite intelligence. So, here's, here's, here's the truth. It is almost inconceivable that we exist. If you want to look into this more, you just Google the fine-tuning of the universe, right? The, 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 the fact that we exist on this planet at this time and that we're living and moving and having our being is almost inconceivably impossible. Um, there's been some maths done on this, and I'm told that the chances of this planet being here at this time, it's called the Goldilocks hypothesis, right? We're in just the right, just the right place, not too hot, not too cold, just, just the right place for everything to be. Apparently, it's 1 to the power of 10 to the power of 55. So, that's, there's one chance in 1 with 55 zeros after it that we're here. Or another way of putting it is, it's, so if you roll a dice, it's one in six that you get a six, right? If you roll it twice, it's one in 36 that you get two sixes. Apparently, the likelihood of us being here is the same chances, the same odds as rolling a dice 70 times in a row and getting a six every time. It's, you, like, makes it a little bit easier to understand, but you still can't conceive of those odds. By all intents and purposes, we don't exist, right? By every law of odds and chance, we don't exist. And yet we do, and that tells us something. It tells us that there is a transcendent, intelligent, benevolent power that is governing this thing. Fine-tuning of the universe. How about this? this is, I like this even more. Beauty. The fact that beauty exists, the fact that we look at the world and see beauty is evidence that there is a creator who himself is beautiful. If you boil everything down to pure materialistic philosophy, there is no beauty, there is no concept of beauty, and there should be no appreciation of beauty. We don't have time to go into this, but the fact that you hear Mozart and think, man, that's beautiful, is a mystery outside of the fact that there is a God who is himself beautiful and that you are made in his image. Third thing, the existence of objective moral values, right? The fact that, well, we talked about trafficking little girls, raping dozens of times a day little girls who should be in primary school. The fact that everyone agrees that that is wrong is evidence that there is a God of justice ruling the world. If, if, and here's what, I'm not saying this, like, on an atheistic worldview, you cannot appeal to an objective moral value system, okay? You can't, it doesn't exist. I'm not saying if you're an atheist, you can't be a good person. You can be, and it's precisely because you're made in the image of God that you can be, all right? You're just proving my argument. But if you have simply a materialistic worldview, there is no right and wrong. There is no way of saying, this trafficking of little girls being raped by white guys is wrong, that you don't have any standard to stand on. You simply cannot say one thing is right and one thing is wrong. You can't. The fact that we do and that we can is evidence that there is not only a transcendent being beyond us, but that he holds us accountable to a system and a standard that he himself has established. The problem is that all of that is true 
and that all of us always suppress the truth. So he says, yeah, yeah, look, from the beginning, this has been clear to everyone. God has made it clear to everyone, but we have over and over again suppressed that truth. And he goes on, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. More and more darkness takes a hold of our hearts and the less and less we're able to see things clearly as God would have us see them. So we find ourselves in this culture today, right? We find ourselves in a culture that is predominantly refusing to acknowledge the goodness and grace of God. And here's what happens, right? Here's the thing. If you turn away from acknowledging God and worshipping Him as the true and living God, you don't end up with no worship. You just end up with a different object for your worship, right? Everyone worships. As I said, every culture that's ever lived that we know of in the history of the world has been a religious culture. They have worshipped something. We are programmed, hardwired or created to worship. Now, the object of our worship ought to be the living God who creates and sustains all things. But if you take that out of the picture, you just end up changing the subject. Sorry, the object. And so he knows this, Paul knows this, this is going on in his time as it is in ours. So in verse 22 to 23, it says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And here's what we do, right? Because we're guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We believe that we are the smartest generation ever to have lived, right? And so we read that and we're like, yeah, first century, morons. Worshipping images, goannas and birds, idiots. And the truth is, we don't worship those things so much anymore but we will camp out for nights on end to get the latest iPhone. I, I, I don't know. I don't know which you think is dumber, but I, I would rather be sitting whittling some wood, to be honest. We absolutely worship objects in the same way that Paul is talking about here. Once you take away worship of the living God, you will start worshipping other things. And because we are the wealthiest, most comfortable generation that's ever lived, and because we are utterly, utterly saturated in consumerism and materialism, we will, by nature, worship things that are created rather than the creator. Whether that's iPhone 10 or keeping up with the Kardashians, or you just put in whatever, whatever you like, oh, I need this. So let's just get off that high horse for a second, get down with the rest of everyone who has ever lived. All of us are prone to wander. All of us are prone to worship those things that are created rather than the Creator. And all of this results in the inflammation of God's righteous wrath. 
Here's how God's wrath is manifest. You might think, well, is it, are we talking about lightning bolts and thunder? And like, is it like Zeus? That kind of. It's not that. Here's how God's wrath is manifest. He gives us what we want. He gives us what we want. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. I told you, I warned you, that this passage this morning was going to be unpopular. And obviously, in reading that little passage there, the thing that jumps out to most of us is Paul's treatment of homosexuality. Right? That's the culture that we're living in now. This is a hot-button issue. He's going to say more than that that we'll get to, but I, I want to deal with this. And, and let me just do a couple of disclaimers. First of all, this is not a sermon about homosexuality, so I'm not going to be able to give you the full treatment that that, kind of, that issue desi- um, deserves. Second of all, and, and most importantly, I am very aware that there are people in our family who uh, deal with same-sex attraction and for whom this is not an abstract theological idea. This is life. This is every day. Um, and I have the joy and privilege of walking with some of these people through that. Um, I'll say from the beginning, I, I draw and believe that the Bible draws a firm distinction between same-sex attraction and ongoing, habitual, unrepentant homosexual activity. In the same way that I know someone in our congregation who really struggles with theft, like struggles when they go to a shop not to put something in their pocket. And I draw a firm distinction between that struggle, which is very real, and the committing of theft, right? This, we, we need to maintain this distinction. And what Paul is talking about here, I believe, is a settled, unrepentant pattern of behavior of engaging in homosexual sex. So let, let's talk about this for a little bit. This is the lengthiest treatment in the New Testament of homosexuality, the, the biggest amount of words given to it. And I know that, and as you probably do, um, that there are many who would want to who would want to draw a distinction here um, and, 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 and sort of um, expand Paul's words more than what we have here. So here's, here's how some of my friends, this is not my enemies, these are my friends who will say, who believe in the Bible and love Jesus, they will say, well, Paul wasn't really addressing monogamous homosexual relationships. He's just addressing uh, situations where someone's being taken advantage of or where there's prostitution or, 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 or the kids involved or something like that. I, I hear that argument. I'm just not seeing it anywhere here. I think Paul is speaking generally about homosexual practice, 
The other argument is, well, he wasn't really aware of long-term monogamous homosexual relationships. He absolutely was. The Greek world that he lived in was replete with this kind of thing. We think, well, we finally arrived at having people be openly homosexual. No, it was absolutely normal in his culture, at least in the Greek culture that he moved in, the Mediterranean culture, and certainly in the Roman culture that he's writing to. So he seems to be saying something without caveats, without qualifications, and I want us to be really clear about this so that you're not in any doubt about where we're coming from. Now, the pastoral care of people who are dealing with same-sex attraction and homosexual practice and so on is very nuanced. There are all kinds of shades of grey here and it's a, it's a matter of walking and journeying with those people and I said, as I said, I have the privilege of doing that but there are some times where you need to be fairly clear so that we all understand where, what I believe the text is saying. So I'm going I'm to read this to you. I've written this out to try and get as much clarity as possible. Here's, here's what I'm seeing in the Scriptures. I believe that the Bible is clear, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that active homosexual practice as a settled, unrepentant pattern of behavior is indicative of an attitude of rejection of Jesus' lordship that leaves people outside of the kingdom of God. I'm going to read that again, and we can chat afterwards if you want, but here here we go. I think the Bible is clear, both old and new covenants, that active homosexual sex as a settled, unrepentant pattern of behavior is indicative of an attitude of rejection of Jesus' lordship that leads people outside of the kingdom, but not beyond God's reach. No one is beyond God's reach. And so, here Paul's argument is that This is the case because God has established in creation a beauty and an order and a a rhythm that is corrupted when we step outside of that beauty, order and rhythm. That's why he refers to women and men who engage in, in homosexual sex as living contra nature, that is against God's intended plan for his creation. Now, as I said, we can chat more about this. But before those of us who don't deal with same-sex attraction start thinking, dodged a bullet there, right? Like God's wrath is coming on those people and, whew, hetero, like safe. Before we, before we get, get there, because we're prone to get there pretty quick, Let me just remind you of what we read and what you may not have picked up on. Verse 24, look at the context. He says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Full stop. What he's saying is, this is a problem for everyone with sexual desire. Right? The context for this is general sexual behavior, the, the word there for um, desire is it translated elsewhere, lust, but it just means over-desire. It means, it, it means 
treating God's gift of sexuality in a way that he didn't intend for it to be treated. So here's what I know. I know that, I know a guy who's on his third adulterous relationship, who is one of the most vociferous condemners of homosexuality, using the Bible to condemn it, that I know. Like, what? Hypocrite. Third adulterous relationship, but all, 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 all the gays, they're all, they're all going to hell. Hypocrite. And if there's anything that stirs God's wrath up more than others, it's hypocrisy. Read the Gospels to see how Jesus feels about hypocrisy. So here's, here's what happened this morning, and uh, I, as I got to this point in the, the message, I felt like, you know, we need to be really clear about what we believe the Bible says about homosexuality, but we also need to be really clear about the danger that each of us face when it comes to judgmentalism and self-righteousness. So I believe that God gave me a word of of prophecy for our church, um, and it came with a real force. I said to them this morning, last night, at about midnight, I ate lots of salami and cheese. So, it, it might be the salami and cheese talking. I don't think it is. I think this was something that was missing from my sermon. Every week, I pray for the gift of prophecy, that God would give me words that need to be said to our church. To be honest, I felt it more strongly in the first service, but that might just be because it came to me new. I think that all of us need to hear this. This, if nothing else, I need to hear this, and you're here anyway. So listen to this. This is from Luke 18. Jesus tells a story that most of us need to hear, all right? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled And those who humble themselves will be exalted. I don't know if that chime is the approval of God for a word of prophecy. I haven't heard that before, but... Most of us need to hear that. If my experience is anything to go by and admittedly my experience with people who are same-sex attracted is almost primarily with people who see that as a problem. 
see that as something that they need to war against, all right? But my experience of those people is that they are much more like the tax collector than the rest of us. They are much more of their, aware of their need than we are, and that is much more likely for someone who's not in that situation to, to be free with the grace of God, that is to treat it with contempt, that is to engage in habitual porn watching or adultery or flirting all the while saying, well, at least I'm not like that. So yeah, he does address homosexuality. I really believe he does. And I believe he does it without any qualifiers, without any caveats. He also addresses all of sexuality and acknowledges that all of us are broken. All of us are in the same position. And then, just to make things even more general and just to be even more conclusive and depressing, I guess, if you don't yet know the grace of God, he goes on and uh, if you are part of the one out of seven and a half billion who doesn't have any problem with sexual sin, then he's about to smash you too. All right, here we go. Verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. Let me say this. I forgot to say this in the morning. When it says that God gives them over, it does not mean that God is the author of their sin. It may, it's literally the, the, the picture is people going down a river and God doing this, right? So God is simply giving them what they want. It is fully, 100%, an act of their will and they are receiving what they desperately want themselves. God gives them over, gives them over uh, to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Here's the point. He wants us to know. He wants us to know that we all desperately need the gospel. That's why he sees the gospel as being so good. That's why he sees it as being so powerful, because he knows that all of us desperately need it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, and that means everyone is in desperate need of it. All of us, he's going to say in Romans 3, 21 to 28, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. That means all of us deserve God's wrath. That means all of us need desperately His grace. There is no category of person that you could put yourself in that doesn't desperately need God's grace. 
And so this morning, I get it. Like, if you, if you were like, I, I might go to church again because I just need a pick-me-up, right? This is probably not the morning for you to get what you were looking for, but it might be the most important thing you ever hear, right? But here's the thing, right? Paul is doing something very pastoral and loving here. He is putting the black backdrop down so that we can appreciate the beauty of the of the jewel of the gospel. I remember when I got married, I was a kid. Like, I can't, even, I can't believe that I was allowed to leave home. It was just, I was this little kid. And Renee and I were both kids. She was more of a kid than me. And I remember going to buy the engagement ring, and we didn't have any money. And uh, we also, especially Renee, has this really strong social justice thing, like it's part of it, and so um, we're really aware of not wanting to go and spend money we didn't have on shiny things, and so she, um, we went together and she said, you know, I'd like you to, to, to buy me a simulated diamond rather than a real one, so I, I don't know how it works, they make it on a lab instead of in a mountain or whatever, so and she found one she really liked. It was, a, it was part of an earring. And by the way, she told me to do this, right, before you say that I'm a jerk, right? She, she was in on this. And, um, and I've tried to buy her a real one since. She doesn't want it, right? She's, she's happy. So we found this earring, and I remember going to the metallurgist who was going to make it into a ring, and I remember him putting it down on this, this jet black velvet thing that they put down on the counter, right? And just the way that that jewel sparkled in the, with the right light and with the right backdrop was beautiful. And that's what Paul wants us to see here. He wants to establish the blackness of our godlessness and wickedness, the, 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 the depravity of our nature so that the, the beauty and majesty and brilliance of the gospel will shine all the more brightly. So here's what happens. I'll just tell you. Here's what happens. If you try and take out all the bits of the gospel that are a bit embarrassing and that talk about God's wrath and judgment and homosexuality and, and, and heterosexual sin, and if you, if you try and you squeeze all that out, you're left with a really dull gospel that isn't very good news. I'll say it again. What I want for us in this series is to see the beauty of the gospel to the extent that we experience the power of the gospel. Now, we're going to see in a couple of weeks' time, Paul's going to describe how it is. How does this whole thing work? How does Jesus' blood shed satisfy the wrath of God that I rightly deserve? He's going to get to that in chapter 3, and it's going to be a great, it's going to be a great thing for us to come to terms with. But between now and then, I just feel like, again, I feel like this is... This is God leading us to a place where we just, we just sit in the mud for a little while. We just come to terms with the reality of our nature as fallen human beings so that we can fully appreciate to the best that we can the beauty of the gospel. One of the ways that we encourage one another to sit in the mud, or I guess, to use the biblical terminology, sit in the ashes, right? The dust and ashes. One of the ways we do that is by taking time each week to confess our sin to God. 
And here's the thing you, you need to remember about confession, because when I was a teenager doing all of the, the, as much wrong stuff as I could possibly do, my experience of this time in church was all dust and ashes and no gospel jewel, right? It was all black with no, no brilliance. That is not what true gospel-centered confession looks like. It's not about you self-flagellating and self-recriminating. It's about acknowledging that you need God's grace and then receiving absolution, which is receiving what Jesus has already done for you. He's already done all that needs to be done to make you right with God. So the way I want to do that today is just by giving you a minute, two minutes, sit in that dust, in the ashes... Think about, hey, here's what I want you to do, actually. Think about that parable that Jesus told. And think about, to what degree am I living the life of the self-righteous Pharisee versus the, the contrite tax collector? Think about that and ask God to give you more of the one that was justified than the one that justified himself. All right? Do that for a little while. And then um, I'm going to pray for us and we'll stand and sing God's praises together. Comes up to, to lead us. Let me just remind you of who God is when it comes to confession and forgiveness. John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. And Psalm 103 says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And from 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Let's stand and sing God's praises together.